Welcome and thank you for tuning in to Veneco Podcast. I'm your host, Juan Andres Misle, and this is episode 11, and can you believe it's been 11 episodes? Be sure to visit our website, www.venecopodcast.com, to check all of our previous episodes, and please, please, please leave us a rating on Spotify, as it helps with the algorithm. On our last episode, we spoke with Antulio Rosales, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of New Brunswick, about energy, development, and crypto and blockchain technology in Venezuela. So far, our most listened episode, so big thank you to all of you who tuned in and listened to my conversation with Antulio. Our stats show the episode was listened to in a total of 20 countries, including Romania, Bolivia, and Japan. Japan! Big thank you. Today's episode of Veneco will take a rather uh, unorthodox turn and might just be my first guest whom, uh, whom I've had my chan- a chance to personally get to know for some years and perhaps to some listeners out there in Caracas and perhaps uh, Great Britain, Italy and beyond, this man needs no introduction. I'm talking of Carlos Failache Carreño, a native Venezuelan urbanist. He's worked in the public sector in Caracas and has carefully studied and analyzed both the evolution of thought and the urban spheres in metropolitan Caracas. Well, let's say he's an all-round thinking man. He's been described as an intellectual omnivore and a preventive pessimist. I personally like to call him my friend. So, Carlos, welcome to the Veneco podcast. It is very great to finally have you on. How are you? I am all right. Thank you very much again. Carlos, so as we've established, this will perhaps be a much more casual Veneco conversation among two Venecos. So tell us a little bit about yourself uh, for our audiences out there in the United States and beyond where they might not know exactly who you are. Who is Carlos José Failache Carreño? Well, I'm originally an architect of the Central University of Venezuela. I have postgraduate studies both in urban regional planning and I have a diploma and a master in those subjects. But at the same time, I worked practically all my life in urban matters, which are part of my expertise. On the other hand, I've been studying ideological and the historical context in which those phenomena occur from the point of view of ideology. For example, the failure of the Chavista government is their policy towards low-income housing. It's a problem that I know fairly well, and they have tried to convince people that they are a very efficient building machine, which is not the truth. The truth is that very serious people like Alfredo Siliento, an architect, which is probably the leading expert in terms of the history of housing in Venezuela, he says that projecting the figures up until 2016 to 2021, low-income housing constructed by the government must be around two and two and a half million at the most. Because in those numbers, they sum up auto-construction, which are not units that are finished, that are in the process of finishing without the proper services and without the proper construction quality. So you mentioned this intersection between ideology and urbanism, and it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things that outside observers notice upon landing in Maiquetia and leaving the airport towards Caracas is precisely building units of the Gran Mission Vivienda right next to the country's main airport. I mean, this is obviously one of the things that Chavismo wants 
casual observers to notice as a takeaway from its legacy. But let's talk a little about the geography of Caracas and how it's changed over the years. What makes the urban topography of Caracas, in your view, different from other big Latin American cities? Well, Caracas, as any Caracaño knows, is a valley with a, a very smelly river, but it's a very narrow valley, which has the Avila as its main representation. The, the topography of this valley, it's uh, very, very restrictive in terms of the development that the city itself has had to have during the years because of the constraints that this narrow valley signify for the, the urban development to grow. On the other hand, the center of Caracas was developed by the conquerors, the Spanish conquerors, in a site that was very, very flat. And from then onwards, the development, the urban development, went eastwards, mainly, because the, the terrain in that direction was easy to be urban, urbanized. In that sense, in the 50s, with the construction of the center, Simon Bolivar Center, and the Avenida Bolivar Avenue as a, an axis of development towards the east that concentrated around the, the area of the, of the Plaza Venezuela. And then afterwards, it continued through Savannah Grande and onwards to urbanize ancient haciendas of both cacao and sugarcane, which came to be a new neighborhoods or what is called here urbanizations. Right. So you talk of um, urban development eastward trajectory to some of these hacienda, right? Uh, to el este del este, some of which became urbanizations or what we call here neighborhoods, basically. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's probably a good segue for hearing a little about your experience working with the municipal government of Chacao. And for those who do not know, Chacao is the smallest and wealthiest municipality in metropolitan Caracas. Tell us about that experience. What exactly did you do in the Chacao government? Uh, it was the last term of uh, Leopoldos. I could collaborate with him in his plans of urban de development, which were very, very exemplary at the time. It is clear those actions were based upon the richness, the intrinsic richness and wealth of that district, of that community. Chacao, in terms of social and urban impact. It was the first time that the human factor was taken into account within the urban context and not the cars. We accomplished something which is rather unusual in our country and in some countries of Latin America. I have a very good experience, working experience with Leopoldo. It's completely another fact, my opinion, of him as a politician. Fair enough. So you have some differences with Leopoldo López, politically speaking, but you are something he is not. 
you are an urbanist, you live in Caracas, and you've known this city very well over the years. What would you do if you had it your way? Say, for example, in a hypothetical scenario, if you were to get elected mayor of the Libertador municipality and you had the budget and the resources that, say, the average opposition mayor had 10 or 15 years ago, what would be your main priorities? How would you like the city of Caracas to look like? We Venezuelans live in such a difficult situation that for us, hoping is the only thing we can have, even though there is a reality that can crush you. It crushes you because it's too hard to digest. We are in a city and in a country that is struggling to survive. And the city itself, as a living organism, is struggling to survive. So if they can do something about that city, first is foster the inhabitants' participation in the solving of their own problems through different ways, different ways of participation, which would be a, a directed participation over a plan, a clear plan that would be in intelligible for the majority of people, especially because there is a, a factor. Libertador is mainly composed by low-income neighborhoods and shanty towns. Mm -hmm. So the problematic of that very huge sector of the city is important and it's directly related to the problem of the barriers. And something which is clear to me and to other experts is that more than building an enormous number of low-income units of housing, the main resources of a very rational and efficient government, in this case municipal government, will be to invest the majority of resources in those barrios in order for them to be inserted in a proper way into the urban milieu, into the urban network. But that is not a process that only is concerned with the material context, but also with the problem of unemployment, because it's impossible to expect that a municipal government, even if it had all the resources, to invest them to as a bottomless pit with no return whatsoever. There is no experience in countries where that kind of actions have been successful that prevent the citizens or the recipients of the governmental actions not to repay in some manner proportionately to their income. And for that, they must have employment because otherwise it's impossible. Ask for them to repay, if not all, a great part of the resources that that government, in this case the municipal government, have invested in the bettering of their urban context. It sounds like you're advocating for some sort of conditional cash transfer program for employed families. Um, but you've also mentioned just now that you want the communities of um, municipalities like Libertador to be self-sufficient. 
at the same time, it also sounds like you want these families to participate and to be involved in the problem solving of their own material needs. Maybe something like the Mesas Tecnica de Agua comes to mind, for example. What is your opinion of other deliberating mechanisms? Like, say, for example, the Presupuesto Participativo, participatory budgeting, that it's it's been used across municipalities and um, other countries like Brazil. What are some mechanisms you think would bridge the gap between participation and self-sufficiency? Well, we used that. We used that method in, in Chicago. We used to, twice a year, to get together with different communities within the municipality to discuss and to design first the actions to be taken in short term and afterwards in long term in order for those neighborhoods to better their urban condition, especially in the few barrios that are contained within Chacao municipality. That went well, but in order for it to be effective in the practice, it has to be managed by a municipal government who is effective in the use of those resources, and that can put forward a feasible plan to do so. A strategic plan has to take into account the neighbor's participation to the extent of not hampering that participation, and on the other hand, not imposing a particular view of what urban development of that side should be. That is something which is not always easy to solve, but it has proven to be the right way to address important urban problems, both in everywhere, both in Caracas and in Venezuela as a whole. We're going to take a short break for our second part. Carlos, I'm very interested in talking about the war of ideas in Venezuela and ultimately the verdict on Chavismo as it stands. We'll be right back. We will leave you with the sounds of Simon Diaz and Amazonic Vibes. Stay tuned. Thank you for staying with us. This is episode 11 of Veneco Podcast. My name is Juan Andres Misle, and my guest is my good friend, Venezuelan urbanist and intellectual, Carlos Failache Carreño. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating on your podcast platform of choosing. But perhaps more importantly, we want to hear from you. If you or someone you know has written or has something to say about Venezuelan democracy or grassroots social movements, please email us. We would love to broaden our perspectives and learn more. You can write us at info at venecopodcast.com. And now, our part two of our conversation with Carlos. Carlos, you're a thinking man. Tell us a little about this proposal you had of creating a think tank some years ago. You sent it to me, and I have to say, I found it very interesting. It Kind of seems like you wanted the public to debate and prepare for what you call in your proposal a socialist system in permanent transition. What do you mean by this? And perhaps 20-something years later, why do you think Chavismo as a political project has failed, as you claim? Well, 
Firstly, my intention when I propose that think tank, I offer it to the Association of Banks in Caracas because I thought at the time that they, they, they had both the interest and the resources to finance such an endeavor. Problem was that they didn't seem to be very interested. It was in the year 2007 when Chavez proposed the constitutional reform, which in the end, fortunately, was defeated. It was his first defeat as a president, and fortunately so. I proposed that because I thought at the time, and I still think the opposition as a whole doesn't have a clear understanding of what Chavismo is and what Chavismo wants. He has been always, always reactive and not propositive. I propose to have this in our side of the opposition in order for us to understand and to prevent and oppose effectively whatever proposition in order to have different scenario, scenarios because reality doesn't flow linearly and deterministically as most planners in the world think. No, reality is a chaotic fact, such as Chavez's death, which changed in a very, very important manner the, the way in which authoritarian Chavistas acted under the control of Maduro and his entourage. I repeat that that think tank was to be a kind of a professional prevention institute in order for the opposition to nourish itself within the clear limits of a, a strategic action. And unfortunately, it couldn't be. Something I was uh, discussing with Antulio Rosales, our previous guest on the show, was this idea that given the socioeconomic changes in contemporary Venezuela vis-a-vis -vis the transformation into the bodegón economy, uh, my view from the outside is that perhaps social movements have become demobilized or maybe disenchanted with the prospects that civil society might become or be the active agents of change. Do you see it this way? What has been the effect on civil society in light of the harsh austerity measures by Maduro inside the country? The regime has acted in a very shrewd way, fostering that division, that fostering that division within the population, with the Venezuelans, the fear of governmental retaliation by means of their repressive forces, not only It can be measured in deaths, numbers, figures, in political prisoners. So that fear acts as a deterrent for the majority of people to participate in a very structured opposition plan because they are barely surviving in one fact staggering fact, uh, a, a, an impressive one, is that almost 90% of people in Venezuela can be considered by international standards as poor. The minimum average salary in Venezuela is $2.40 a month when international institutions define 
extreme poverty, an income of less than $2 per day. Make the numbers, my dear friend, make the numbers. Within that framework, hyperinflation and scarcity are control mechanisms that favor the regime. People that have to invest all of their time to survive, simply survive, cannot have the time to protest, cannot, cannot have the time and even the energy to organize themselves and ask for a change. I wanted to close this episode paraphrasing Antonio Gramsci, who once spoke about being a pessimist of the intellect, but an optimist of the will, uh, of la voluntad. Is this what you mean by being a preventive pessimist as you describe yourself? Are you at all an optimist with prospects of Venezuela ever enduring a democratic transition? How would you like to close this thought? Okay, okay, that, that is the main question for you to ask, for me to ask myself, and for the people of Venezuela to ask themselves within the context in which we live, and which we barely survive. We'll have Chavismo for a while. I believe so, I believe so, because even if the regime has failed in all respects, but there is only one respect in which, only one or two respects in which it hasn't failed. The first one is to achieve a matrimony with the Praetorian repressive forces of the state. It's difficult for any person, even for, for me, that I, I, I've been analyzing this for years, to be optimistic with that kind of future. Not in the short term, not in the medium term. We, I, use, I prefer to use preventive pessimists, which is better for me and for other people, I suppose, for not going down in depression as quickly as it can be. I don't expect very much, but not because I am depressed, but because I can analyze the context and arrive to the conclusion that we will have Chavismo for a while, probably for a long while, and that is depressing by itself. Why? Because they have the power to foster this unity within the opposition. And while that is the context in which we have to barely survive, it is bo it's possible to be positive, or even optimistic, because even if uh, Master Carl Jung said that men cannot survive without hope, women as well are skating on a very thin ice of hope and we can probably drown if that ice breaks under our feet. Oh, I'm with you 100%. It's just not a good outlook for the country's uh, social tensions. It's actually one of the reasons I started this podcast. I wanted to understand what are basically the social conjunctures needed for the country to generally begin heading towards a sense of normalcy for people, grassroots movements, displaced communities. But I guess we'll just have to leave that for another time because that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Carlos. It's been extremely insightful. Carlos Failache Carreño is a Venezuelan urbanist and an all-around thinking man. 
Carlos, hope to have you back on the show sometime soon. Thank you very much. Muchas gracias, hermano.